welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, while you're enjoying vacation, uh, I had a really nice conversation with Phil Frazier, the CEO of Killam Properties, um, one of the biggest REITs in Canada. Uh, and by the way, the largest landlord in Atlantic Canada, people may not realize that, but uh, of the 25,000 units that uh, Killam currently has, uh, there are 12,500 units in Atlantic Canada. That is, uh, that's a big number, right? Absolutely. Sounds like the right organization to talk to when we have a housing challenge. Absolutely. And we, of course, we did talk about the housing challenge as part of the discussion. One of the interesting things that we did talk about was the affordability issue. Um, and, um, you know, we keep hearing that, um, you know, the cost of apartments in the major markets are over $2,000 um, per month. I found it really interesting that when we talked about that, he said, you know, of their, um, they have 19,000 apartments, they have 6,000 manufactured uh, homes in their portfolio. 75% of their apartments are under $1,500. So that was a real, that was a bit of a shock. Uh, also, he said of the $19,000, uh, the average was slightly under $1,400 uh, a month. So. They uh, they have uh, uh, their uh, portfolios uh, under the market right now, and he wasn't complaining about it. By the way, it's just that that that's what their rates were. And of course, one of the things that they've done a pretty good job of over the years is managing their costs. We talked about uh, their efforts to keep their costs down, um, and uh, they've done they've invested quite a bit in renewable energy. In fact, uh, they expect that. By 2025, they will have 10% uh, of their energy uh, self um, self developed, and uh, so you know they're making efforts to keep the cost side down. There are some things they can't control, and he spent a lot of time talking about the impact of taxes on the housing market, especially the construction side, which I I think we need to dig into a little bit more, um, but. Uh, he said currently about 20% of the cost of construction is in the form of taxes and that governments no. can alleviate that issue by taking less. And that's something we should probably dig into a little bit more. Absolutely. We want to make it as 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 uh, easy as possible to develop housing, particularly in our our part of the country. We need more and more housing. Uh, he did. You did talk uh, about mobile uh, housing. I was surprised at the size of their portfolio. Uh, yeah. What did you learn about uh, about that? Well, this is a this has been a, a piece of their business for a long time. It actually used to be a bigger piece, but there's some rules as a REIT. You can only have about ten percent of your portfolio in uh, other types of housing, mm. and uh, currently uh, the manufactured housing side is only five percent. So they it's basically managing communities um, and and uh, providing services to uh, those communities. Uh, so that's that part. Uh, by the way, uh, they also are in commercial. They have a, a little over uh, a million square feet of commercial um, under management. And um, they, uh, they purchased the uh, Charlottetown Mall for those in PEI uh, who may not know that um, sometime back. Uh, I don't know what the timing on that was, but I think it was not that long ago. So, you know, their portfolio obviously is, uh, is considerable. They operate in seven provinces, um, 
And, you know, I think the story that is interesting for Atlantic Canadians is this is a company that started in 2000. Their first purchase was um, in 2002, I think. They bought three, building, three buildings that worth about $10 million, and they had 143 units. That was their start. It, within five years, they were at a half a billion dollars, and uh, now their portfolio is worth $5 billion. That's, a, that's an Atlantic Canadian success story, if I ever heard one. Yeah, absolutely. We don't, we don't uh, talk about that sector that much, but that is an absolute example, just like Sobeys or any of the other uh, big uh, companies that have emerged out of our region. It's a really great story. I guess the question I would have for you, though, is are they, they've been building a lot more, according to your conversation with him. They've been, as, uh, as opposed to buying, they've been building a lot. Are they going to be building a lot more now to help us solve this problem? Well, you know, that's the that's the sticky point. Uh, they continue to have uh, uh, expansion plans, but interest rates have uh, have uh, dampened their enthusiasm for the market, let's say. Um, and uh, they are they're hoping that uh, they'll see some um, downward motion in interest rates that will get them back to uh, kind of their uh, regular investment levels. But there's no doubt that interest rates are dampening the market for construction. And uh, that's a problem um, for all of Canada uh, to deal with. So, you know, we're starting to hear some pullback from uh, development uh, community in general. And, um, and Killam is, is part of that. You know, they've, uh, they've got about $700 million of their own buildings that they built. Um, so, you know, they're a big part of the, the, uh, the building of a new um, supply and, uh, to have them on the sidelines even a little bit it's going to hurt yeah i mean maybe we have to start thinking more broadly maybe the canada Infra infrastructure bank should start offering uh lower interest rates on on housing development i'm not sure if that's a solution but we've got to find a way to get the developers to build the houses we need to support population growth it's an issue in our region it's an issue across the country yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, I just want to give the audience a, an, an idea of kind of the, the impact of uh, taxes, because um, Phil was saying that, you know, you know their cost of the per unit uh, has gone from about $2,000 a unit to $7,000 a unit. So, uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's considerable. But of that amount, of that amount, three to 4000 are taxes that's something that they cannot control you know that's out of their hands and so again i think it's up to uh, governments at every level to see what they can do to relieve the, the issue of cost of construction and and ongoing management costs because it's getting very difficult uh, for landlords uh, to provide stock to the market absolutely so with that introduction uh, here's my conversation with Phil Fraser, the CEO of Killing Properties. Uh, we are pleased to be joined on this episode of the Insights Podcast by Phil Fraser, the President and CEO of Killing Properties. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thank you, Don. So we'd like to begin by finding out a little bit about your background and your path to your current role with uh, Killam Properties. Tell us about the history of Killam, uh, perhaps when it was established, key moments in the development of the company, and the decision to become a REIT, 
2016. Um, first of all, Donna, I, again, I want to sort of thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And also, um, I thank you for um, the questions that and topics that we might talk about today um, to give to give them to me in advance. And I think just as a sort of a, a starter, um, but I put the questions into sort of two categories. One is the history of Killam, and that's basically one of the, the first questions that you asked me. And the second is um, a lot of questions about where we are today, the current environment, and where we're going in the future. And I think as a backdrop, um, I just want to sort of put out one sort of statement. And that is, if any, if the government official came to you a number of years ago and said, we have two major policies that we're going to try to implement over the next few years, and they would include an increase in immigration because of all the reasons that we have um, to, in terms of looking at that as in, to grow our economy in the future. And the other one is we have to take care of, of our environment. So therefore we have to go, you know, the wording is, or the saying is typically go green. We have to sort of reduce our carbon footprint. I think any reasonable Canadian would have said, those are two good policies to, to follow through and try to implement over the next few years of your mandate. And I'm talking the federal government. So with that in mind, as we get part into the second part of this discussion, um, I will sort of loop back a number of times about what the federal government wanted to do and how they've implemented and how it really is impacting the housing sector today. So um, sorry for that bit of a preamble, but the first question is the history. So um, I would have finished university in 1988, started in 1979. And even when I was sort of finishing high school, first few years of undergrad, um, I always liked real estate. I thought it was fascinating from a physical form. And even back then, pre-internet, basically the path to wealth was in real estate. Or that's what we were led to believe from a number of fronts. And so my undergrad was straight, simple um, business, commerce degree from Dell. And then I went into a master's of urban planning at Tons, which is now part of Dow, really to understand the development process, the land use planning process. And I followed up with an MBA in finance from St. Mary's University. So I thought I had the, the, um, the university skills to get out there and look for a job in the real estate sector. And my first job was with a company that was local at the time, had a local branch, Marcel Trust, and I was a real estate analyst. So I went from an analyst a few years later to a broker or a salesperson um, buying, selling, financing commercial real estate. And then over, over the years, um, basically became aware of, of essentially what was the, the landscape of the commercial real estate um, industry in Canada, worked for a company that was morphed into a, um, a local developer, and then finally made the decision um, coming into the beginning of 2000 to start my own company, which would have been a public company. So the whole idea was to um, take advantage of what Alberta was offering with the Alberta Stock Exchange, which was a capital pool company where you could go 
uh, round up a few investors and then do a blind pool, raise money, look for an acquisition, and then basically, um, basically there'd be no restrictions on the listing that you had attained and start a small publicly traded real estate entity. So I started that endeavor in 2000, took two years to incorporate, uh, do the first fundraising, um, basically get listed. I had a listing um, by the end of the first year of working on it, which would have been December of 2000. I had my original um, five directors, including myself, and Robert Richardson would have been one of the original directors. And because he was a CA, um, I asked him to be the um, initial uh, chief financial officer or CFO. And we took another year or so to get our first acquisitions um, arranged and financed. And we started life as a very small publicly traded company in uh, February of 2002. We started life with 143 units and an asset base of $10 million. Um, two apartment buildings in Moncton and one in Halifax. So from there, I think the, the, the best part of the story is, is that we grew very quickly the first three years of existence from 2002 to 2005. And by the time we finished the year in 2005, we were the largest apartment owner in Atlantic Canada. And back then we had about an asset base of close to $500 million. And um, since then it's been a fairly good, positive, steady growth in terms of um, our asset base and revenue and income and earnings. Uh, you made a, an important decision in 2016 to become a real estate um, uh, investment trust. Um, tell us about that decision. Um, when we re when we started in 2000, there were already a number of REITs out there, but the path to be public as a small small microcap would have been a corporation. And so as we grew, there was really not a lot of pressure to turn into a REIT or to convert to a REIT structure. But um, over time, it became apparent for the, one of the biggest reasons is that the beauty of being public and being in a industry where you have similar companies that you compete with um, from an investor point of view and from a product point of view is that you want to be you have to be the same sort of structure. So even though we were being covered by a number of, of institutions from a research point of view, we were not grouped into the REIT sector. And then eventually it became apparent that we should be turning into a REIT. And that's what we did in 2000, in the, at the end of the year of 2015 and started life as a REIT in 2016. So we ceased to be a Canadian corporation and no longer called Killam Apartment, Killam Properties, Inc. We became Killam Apartment REIT. So, as I mentioned, a REIT is an investment trust. <clears throat> Tell us the advantages. Uh, you mentioned a couple of them uh, to Killam of becoming a REIT. Does that, did that provide you greater access to uh, funds? Well, the biggest advantage or what it was set up for 
And again, the, the history of REITs, they were in a number of other countries listed. And really, it's a real estate investment trust. And back then, the government decided to do that, but it was also for businesses like other like oil and gas companies, and they were just mm. you know, income trust. But the idea was that if you had, and it's the same thing today as a limited partnership. So the idea is, is that <clears throat> from a tax point of view, it's a flow through, meaning that essentially there are no Canadian income taxes paid at the entity level. They are, they are pushed down to the actual owners of the trust. So therefore it's a flow through vehicle. So from an income tax point of view, it's very efficient. And the idea was, is that there's no leakage really from a tax point of view to the eventual federal government because they're collecting it at the individual level versus at the corporation level. Right, right. Uh, Killen Properties is increasingly becoming a national company, obviously with its headquarters in Halifax. David and I have been, you know, talking about the importance of having uh, head office jobs in this region. Uh, tell me how many uh, employees uh, Killen currently have and, and, and how many of those work uh, in your head office operations? We have currently today approximately 800 and maybe 50 to 70 of of those folks would be seasonal and they would be involved in our um, our seasonal park side of our business. Right. Uh, so therefore, maybe in the dead of the winter, we might have about 700, 725 current employees and they would be right across the country. Head office here, uh, we have between 80 and 85 today and we are it's interesting, we are located at 3700 Kemp Road in the building <clears throat> that we've been here since the very first day. And mm -hmm. we typically, over the years, have, <clears throat> excuse me, have expanded to, uh, to the point where we basically now have about 15,000 to the 20,000 square feet of the building. Right. So, um, 80 people here. Our other offices, we would have another um, 60 to 70 in, in regional offices. Right. I want to just uh, talk a little bit about your size, and, and these are these are obviously publicly available numbers. But what are your annual revenues uh, for the company? Um, last year we we um, had revenue of about three hundred and thirty million dollars, and so far for the first sixteen months of the six months of the year, um, we recorded one hundred and seventy one million dollars of revenue from properties. I'm amazed by your 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 quick start to your company. You just told us about Phil. I mean, you, you started with ten million dollars in year one. It sounds like by year five you had five hundred million dollars under management. That's incredible growth. Tell us uh, what is the current uh, value of your real estate holdings, if you could. Um, currently, we have um, approximately five billion dollars in assets, and we would have um, eighty nine percent of that straight in straight up into apartments we have about five percent of our balance sheet in manufactured home communities <clears throat> and six percent in commercial properties today so uh to give our listeners some perspective how would Killam compare in size relative to other REITs in your sector in canada um two ways to look at it i i, I think one is is mm -hmm. that the REIT 
um, sector in Canada that's listed on Toronto Stock Exchange has about 43 to 45 names of, mm -hmm. and they vary from about the largest would be 13 billion dollar market cap down to maybe a couple hundred million dollars in market cap. So if ours is approximately 2.2 billion today, um, we would be probably around the 10th or 11th largest REIT by market cap. Mm -hmm. um, there would be some, there would be a number um, larger than us from an asset base. And then on the um, our sector, which is apartments, there's about six or seven apartment REITs. Um, and we would be the third largest. So in terms of unit count, we have 19,000 apartment units and uh, about 6,000 manufactured home um, community lots. Well, that's uh, <clears throat> that's quite a, <laughs> it's quite a good sized portfolio. Obviously, that's an amazing growth over uh, a little over 20 years. It's uh, yeah, quite quite yeah. Uh, quite significant. So. Um, Maybe you could tell us uh, you're across Canada. Mm -hmm. Are you are you in every province or or how many provinces are you currently in? Yeah. Um, one more little comment on the last little bit is that mm -hmm. it's been a very interesting um, ride to sort of be involved since day one, and also it's such a from a historical point of view when we started the ability to buy properties um, was out there. And we were sort of the first mover trying to consolidate a lot of the apartments in the markets. So when we started back in 2002, um, the landscape in terms of the ownership of apartments in Atlantic Canada, it, it typically was, was um, scattered with um, entities and individuals that own either one property or up to a thousand units, um, but only in one single location. There was very few entities that would have said, I own in Halifax and Moncton. So everything was very regional and um, scattered with a lot of sort of um, ownership and basically long-term ownership. There was very little liquidity in the sense that a lot of properties traded um, throughout the market. And just to sort of back it up, when we started, there was the other um, entities in Canada that basically were consolidating the marketplace, meaning that all they really, their, their goal was to go out and acquire properties in a sort of a very defined geographical location across Canada. And so when we started, um, Boardwalk was the largest and they were based in Calgary and they were doing the consolidation of the West, but had moved into Ontario. Um, Caprete um, basically started life in Ontario and quickly um, merged with another um, apartment breed that's no longer existed um, in Ontario. And they were consolidating primarily in Ontario and Quebec. And then there was an entity, um, Northern Properties, which was doing the consolidation play in the north part of the country. And so we basically had Atlantic Canada to ourselves from a consolidation point of view, which really helped. But the key or the interesting thing was back then, we were buying apartment buildings anywhere between 
twenty and fifty thousand dollars a door. And so those first um, few years, um, our cost base was incredibly low compared to what it is today in in, in terms of buying or building um, an apartment building. It's amazing, really, when you look back in twenty years. But then again, relatively speaking the cost of a single family home was a lot less as well. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, Don, sorry, um, we are currently in seven provinces. We started life um, initially just concentrating in Atlantic Canada, the four provinces and the six markets, and they would have been the six largest um, right. urban markets, the four provincial capitals, plus Moncton and St. John, New Brunswick. Um, in 2010, we moved into Ontario, and then there the markets were that we wanted to concentrate. There's four, and there's four today. It's Ottawa, Kitchener-Waterloo, London, and GTA, which is gigantic. And then we moved in the last um, five or six years to the west, and we own properties in Alberta, Calgary, and Edmonton, and we also own properties in um, B.C., so we are not in um, the other three provinces. Right. Um, <clears throat> Kilm has been on an aggressive expansion program, obviously, for some time. I wonder if you can give us an idea of how much you have invested in new properties only in the last decade. Um, we have averaged about $175 million per year. We had two years that we actually we call them, they were big years between 300 and $400 million of properties. That was in 2018 and 2021. In addition, we would have started building on our own balance sheet um, about 10 years ago. And we've completed about $700 million of our own developments. Well, that's a pretty big number. <laughs> uh, you, you already told us about the number that of properties that Killam owns. Um, but I want to focus a little bit on Atlantic Canada now. I don't know if you can break those numbers down, but can you give us an idea um, uh, of, of what the distribution of your current ownership is within Atlantic Canada? Is that possible? Sure. Um, we, we have approximately 6,000 units in Halifax out of the 19. We have about 1,000 in PEI, 1,000 in, in Newfoundland, and we have about 4,500. I believe in New Brunswick currently. Yeah. So, uh, would that make you the largest landlord in Atlantic Canada, Phil? By far. Yeah. I that's what I would have thought yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, early on, it appears that much of your growth was associated with, as you mentioned, acquisition of properties. I guess it was easier to do in the early years when the price per door was, was, uh, lower. But it, it does seem that increasingly that you have a strategy that favors building your own properties. And you already mentioned that you've got, you spent $700 million on building your own properties in the last decade or so. What led you to deciding that you would move away from an acquisition strategy? You're probably still doing acquisitions, I get it, but, but to uh, build your own building uh, strategy. Well, one of the interesting points of the apartment industry um, that existed years ago was that it was classified basically as a very aging um, 
group of properties. There was not mm-hmm. a lot of new development coming into the 80s and 90s. The, the heydays mm-hmm. were the 60s, 70s, and a bit in the 80s. And that can sort of be um, traced back to a lot of it was um, government sort of LPs. They, they were tax advantages to build apartment buildings. They were more involved in the whole housing sector. But eventually they got out of it. And basically a lot of the developers just turned to building condos or single family homes. And with a fairly stable population growth of the country, everything was kind of in, in, in balance. But um, if anything, the REIT sector, um, one of the criticisms that we had in the beginning years was um, you got a lot of old stock in Canada compared to the U.S., which was constantly building new A quality um, supply in housing. And so when we had investors uh, coming up from the States, they would typically kind of look at it and say, wow, your stuff is kind of old. Mm. Um, and even for us, we always recognized that there was value in the newer part of the market. So for instance, the first three buildings we bought in 2002, they were relatively new. They were almost new um, back then. I mean, it's, it's kind of not surprising that now they're 20 years old plus, but they were new when we bought them. And even the building up in Clayton Park was just relatively new. So we liked the newer because again, it was more modern. Um, it was, there was less deferred maintenance in the buildings and we, we recognized that. So over the years, we've always concentrated on trying to buy newer product from developers and looking at the REIT world in the States, which was more developed, um, more mature, they were already building new product on their own balance sheet. So it was fairly, it was just a natural sort of thought process that we should be doing our own building once we got to the size that it wasn't going to hurt our cash flow and our earnings on a yearly basis. And that's when we started. Uh, you previously mentioned that in addition, uh, in addition to uh, traditional uh, apartment units, you also have a portfolio of manufactured home communities. Um, tell us about that aspect of your portfolio. That goes back almost to the early, early days. And what we were doing when we sat around and looked at the opportunity um, in Atlantic Canada, we quickly realized that all the combined apartments in Atlantic Canada was the size of Ottawa from a from an apartment inventory point of view. So from a consolidation point of view, it was we were kind of limiting ourselves um, in the beginning years to the size and how fast we could grow. So at that time, I mean, we were looking at the the asset class of the manufactured home communities, very fragmented, um, had a lot of good, solid um, investment um, characteristics in terms of of, um, basically very good cash flow. There was not a lot of deferred maintenance. I mean, all you were responsible for was the water and sewer and the roads of these communities. The tenant owned their own home. So there was home ownership, which was a positive aspect compared to some of the apartment buildings we were looking at at the time and how run down they were. And um, basically, um, you know, we used to say everybody pays and nobody leaves. 
And so mm-hmm. we kind of like that from an asset investment um, class. And so at the very beginning, we identified that we were going to look to acquire manufactured home communities. So in the early years, we would have had 25% of our asset base in manufactured home communities and 75 in apartments. And that ratio stayed fairly consistent right up until, again, one of the things that we had to do to turn into a REIT was basically we had to reduce our ownership of manufactured home communities because the government had changed the rules um, and basically put all the um, business um, trust out of operations. They basically changed the rules. And we didn't know if the income from manufactured home communities would have been deemed to be good income. And so and to, to be a REIT, you have to have income coming from real property. Well, right. it's real property and land are different. So we still don't know that exactly. But the way that the REIT rules work, you can have up to 10% of other income in real estate and still be on side from your REIT rules. So therefore, um, coming into that 2014-2015 time period, we had to sell down our our portfolio to reduce that number and so to be able to qualify to become a REIT. And so that's where why we went from 10,000 units down to about five. And slowly we've been building that back up. But they've been very good assets. Um, We do appreciate that side of our business and we're very good operators. Right. That's interesting. I also noticed that you offer seasonal properties. That's kind of interesting. Tell us about that. Well, that's a subcategory of the manufactured home communities. So okay. you have your year-round permanent um, communities. And right. you know, even in, say, in Halifax, we have about five or six um, communities um, around Metro Halifax. We have one in Fairview. We get them out in um, Harrisville, Harris Field over in in Eastern Passage. So that's where the person owns their own home and we take care of the roads, the water and sewer year round. And that's their permanent home. We got involved with the the seasonal uh, communities um, many, many years ago. And what we liked about it is, is that they typically, it's it's basically um, your second home. It's your your vacation, Mm -hmm. it's your cottage. And all, most of these communities, you come in and you park your 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 trailer, your your camper, on a lot, and you keep it there from the beginning of May until the end of September. So we run these for uh, approximately five months of the year, and so the, the returns are, are just as good. And then what we typically do, we have their amenity based in terms of they're either on the water. And a lot of them up in Ontario that we have, they're on a lake. Um, so there's boating facilities. Um, also, there's campground facilities. There's playground facilities for the kids. And that's where um, families go to enjoy their summers. They can go there for the whole summer. They can go there on the weekend. And we run these with with a lot of sort of amenities. I see. Now, inflation has placed increasing pressures on landlords such as yourself and, and rental rates uh, on consumers. How, how has uh, your company dealt with these pressures? Um, I, I think the idea of inflation, or we can get to the root of, the, of, of why we're 
sort of in this period of high inflation. But really the question is, how do we manage our expenses? Mm -hmm. I think it's been, it's, we've been very disciplined over the years to look at our business and say, well, we're not like commercial real estate where you, you negotiate a net rent, which is the base rent. And that tends to maybe move over time. There's step, there's step ups and all those other expenses you're going to be responsible for as a tenant, which are known as, um, taxes and common area um, mm -hmm. charges. So therefore, the landlord, the owner, his rent is net, meaning that you're going to get that rent no matter what happens to the expenses. The old apartment business is a gross lease in simple terms, meaning that we charge a rent and all those expenses to run it are to us. And so as an operator, you have to sort of really like there's two ways to make money. You can continue to increase the revenue side or you can manage your expenses. And so from an inflationary point of view, um, it's no different. Really, um, there's a lot of those expenses that are out of our control, meaning that um, the government dictates what they're going to do um, in terms of increasing our property taxes, which in the beginning, um, we were, when I say the beginning, at the very first few years of, of running Killam, um, we would have had probably an average cost of all expenses all in of $2,000 a unit. Today, it's probably close to $7,000 a unit. So over mm -hmm. time, the cost of our business has continued to increase faster than our average rent has increased. So, mm -hmm. and now the typical property tax alone bill it's probably between $3,000 and $4,000 a unit. Hmm. So it is, so that is out of our control. All hmm. the other expenses that are, are within our control, that's what we're doing in terms of strong property management on the expense sites. And a lot of it is investing in technology, um, operating systems, anything we can do to reduce our, our expense site, we're doing it. Bill, there have been rising uh, concerns about housing affordability across the country, obviously, and especially in markets like uh, Halifax, where there's been a rapid increase in population. Uh, what concerns do you have about the affordability of your own buildings at this time? Um, Killam is well positioned in, the mar in this market in terms of offering a variety of price ranges for our tenant base. Using rental.ca as a data point, the most recent rental reports note that the average monthly rent in Halifax or asking rent is about $2,000 a month. Now looking at Kelm's portfolio, 80% of our Halifax rents are less than $1,500 a month. And across our entire portfolio, it would be 75% less than 1,500. Our current average rent for 19,000 units is $1,384. We are able to provide an affordable component to tenants across all of our markets. Um, and we have a lot of programs in place to help tenants, such as our tenant relief program that we consider on a case by case basis. And we work with a lot of nonprofit agencies in several regions with our subsidized units. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, that data is really interesting um, because you get the impression that you know the average uh, 
apartment is well over $2,000 a month in, in the Halifax market, at least. And uh, you're saying that 80% of your units are 1500 or less. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it's a function of, again, we've owned a lot of our apartments for between 15 and 20 years. Yeah. And back then the rents were based on the sort of the, the cost base of our buildings. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming your occupancy is almost 100% at the moment, is it? Uh, as I, I think I was saying earlier, I mean, we have, you know, in the early years, we struggled to get a building close to 98 to 99% occupied with a lot hmm. of turnover every single year. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is that we are so close to being full. Some yeah. of our buildings would have waiting lists and um, our average turnover per year, um, for probably this year is going to be down to pretty close to 20%, which tells me that yeah. we have housing shortage. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now tell me what role does a company like Killam have in building and managing affordable units? Because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the lack of affordable units, you know, a lot of fingers pointed at various levels of governments, but private sector uh, companies like your own obviously are, are the key to building affordable units. Um, you know, uh, what is it that, that you see that you play in, in that, in that, uh, uh, um, dealing with that issue? Um, I think it's always been part of us that we know, and we've always known that we have a very large responsible responsibility in terms of the housing um, industry and what we have to do in terms of giving back and how we sort of run our business day to day. Um, in the early years, I mean, we almost basically had a, a belief or philosophy. You don't really have to toot your own horn regarding what you do to help people out. I mean, good deeds will be, you know, the people that we give these good deeds or help them out, they know that. And that's basically all we were looking for. But I mean, in the last few years, if anything, there has been a lot of criticism of um, against landlords and large landlords. And, and so therefore it's incumbent upon us to basically sort of tell the world, you know, we're playing our role and we're doing quite a bit. So we've been supporters of a lot of nonprofit organizations for many, many years. One of the biggest ones and that we've been supporting since almost the beginning of Kellum has been mental health. So we've been providing um, subsidized housing um, to that um, cause since almost the very beginning of Kiln. And today we have basically 880 subsidized um, apartments. Um, and we have a lot of them with different agencies. And we have another 300 units that we basically have just committed to um, long-term affordability of a certain percentage of those units in those properties. So collectively, we have about 1,100 units and that in one form or another, we are providing affordable subsidized housing. That's a, that's a pretty big number in terms of subsidized union, uh, units, uh, Phil. I, you, know, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you, you're you're an experienced operator, you're in the, in the market every day, you're building buildings, 
What needs to be done in your opinion to increase the supply of affordable housing in general? That's a, that's a very tough question to sort of quickly answer, but essentially um, you got to look at it in terms of right now, about 96% of all apartment accommodations, housing is provided by the market. And so therefore that number has decreased over the years. So first of all, the deeply affordable, the homelessness, those are really responsibilities of government. And we, we can do our share as market rental providers, but we cannot solve those issues. And truly the, the rise of homelessness, the rise of people stressed out relative to looking for um, affordable accommodations has been increasing over the last three years. Mm. Um, I believe that, you know, it's going to take everybody as a, in, in the industry to participate and do their share what they can do. But also it's going to take a more coordinated effort from all three levels of government to get involved. Now, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk and press about where the current federal government is today. I mean, they came out with a program in 2018, their, their, their national housing strategy that they're going to provide um, $82 billion over a 10 year period. And they were going to get back into basically the housing sector. But I think, you know, ways to look at this and to understand what we're faced with, um, one of the, the main sort of points that's coming across is what do we really need from um, increased housing? And everybody's, or the number of reports that, were, that are out there, they're basically saying that we need close to three to five million new units, whether they're single family, deeply affordable housing units, or just more market rent units out there. So how do you actually get that number? Like, a, I mean, that is gigantic. So the, the issue is, um, if you looked at it, what does that mean? Like a million more units, just to sort of ease the supply side. Well, today, it costs about $500,000 to build a unit, whether it's an apartment unit or a house. So if the country as a whole for many, many years really only builds about 200,000 units. And again, 20 years ago, that cost would not have been $500,000. It would have been some number a lot less. But today, that's a pretty good number to sort of start with. Um, our last development that we just started a year ago in Waterloo, the cost, the budget, the construction budget is $600,000 a door for a 139 unit building. Um, so 3 million or 200,000 200, even now, what kind of investment is that? Well, a thousand apartment units is gonna cost you $500 million to build today. Mm. 
10,000 units is going to cost you 5 billion. 100,000 costs you 50 billion. So that 200,000, the baseline, is $100 billion of investment per year in the country. $100 billion. So that's, that's basically any way you look at it. And if you wanted to even double that to start the pressure, that's $200 billion. That's $50 billion of cash. And maybe all the lending institutions can come up with $150 billion of debt for you. Hmm. So I, I just, it's mind boggling the issue that we, are, that we are currently facing in terms of the sheer number of dollars. So when you ask the question, I mean, in the simplest terms are everybody has to do their part. And the biggest thing that governments can do is promote it as, you know what, it's currently an issue, but it's economic growth, it's job creation, and it's wealth creation. And they got to send a positive message. Now that's at the federal level. The provincial level, these guys can basically say, like, you know what? Cool your jets on increasing the property taxes. That's the operating side once you get it built. But from my point of view, which I haven't said a, a word to, the biggest stumbling block today for getting out the door and starting the building cycle is at the municipal level. And as much as they say, they want development they're open for development reality is they don't want it and the process and to get a actual building permit in hand to put a shovel into the ground is complicated time consuming and the number of roadblocks in every municipality across the country is long and hard mm. it is just something that I don't see changing overnight. And that's probably the biggest issue I see is at the municipal level. Another challenge for major landlords like yourself, and you addressed it early in the, at the beginning of the podcast, was the environmental um, sustainability of your properties. I know you've done a lot of work in this area. Can you tell us about the, what uh, Killam is doing uh, to address environmental sustainability issues? Well. Don, I'll, I'll try to be quite short on some of these, um, the, the question, the general question and overall. What I find um, in terms of the changes that I have witnessed in, in running Kellum, the growth of the ESG side of our business, the implications and the benefits are astounding. I mean, if anything that sort of gets me up in the morning to think about, to get excited about is this side of our business. And again, in simple terms, we are a gross lease business. So if somebody comes to you and says, here's all these things you can do to improve your margins and also help the environment, well, that's a pretty good thing. And that also corresponds to and complements our desire to be involved in the building of new products So and new, new buildings. So when I look out at it, the evolution of this, basically the three components, the environment, the social side, and the governance, everything has moved at sort of incredible pace over the last few years. Um, and I would say overall to the better. So when I break them down, I look at it as 
okay, governance. The governance model of running a public company and basically where all this is coming from, it's coming from your institutional shareholders to the point where, and again, from a North America point of view, we're behind the European institutional investors. They demand this. They want to know what you're doing on, from an ESG point of view. So that's why we put out ESG reports. That's why we submit all the information and things we're doing to all these rating agencies to get a rating to see our score improve because it's important. And now the last little part of this is that even from a governance point of view, they want um, us, the people that work in these companies, our compensation to be tied into ESG um, elements of what you're doing. So when I look at it, the governance model has improved from a from a like from an oversight. Um, then you get into the social side. It includes what are you doing from a diversity inclusion, all things that basically add up to a better organization and a better society um, over the years to improve. But the environmental one is the one that I look at and say, wow, this is going to have a huge impact. So to start with is, is that, um, and we'll separate what the government is telling us we have to do. But right now, when you look at it, um, the technologies that are out there and the, the features that you can put into buildings are amazing. So the first ones that we started to look at and the big ones are, how do we reduce our operating costs? So there's a, there's a side of the building technology of running your buildings. We went through a whole phase of getting rid of the, the old oil fired um, furnaces to natural gas that is more efficient and saving us money when you know we had here in Atlantic Canada the first access to natural gas and now we are moving towards the, the truly um, complete electric buildings so um, and that's another sort of topic of where we're going um, to get off all fossil fuels but we have been big believers of solar power so we would have and continue to invest as fast as we can get them up. We have 19 installs. We're producing about 1.5 megawatts of our own um, electricity. And we have a goal to basically produce by 2025, 10% of all electricity that we use um, um, and have to pay for, that we're, we are generating that by um, solar power um, around our properties. Um, we have over a thousand units now that have geothermal as part of the heating source, which really reduces the consumption of basically traditional um, gas-fired uh, furnaces or in, in the case of the newer ones, uh, basically electric um, fired sort of furnaces with the heat pumps, the split pumps. So um, beautiful technology where you basically drill um, holes in the ground, 600 feet, which is about a 60 story building. You put in the quarter inch plastic pipe, it goes into the ground, the gravel gets filled up around it and it just absorbs the heat of the earth. And it's a constant 52 degrees. And we use that to, um, in the winter time, 
we only have to bring up that, that source of, of heat to about 70. And in the summertime, it reverses and it cools down the units. So we like that. Um, and that will continue to look for opportunities. So solar, um, geothermal, um, we're also basically um, looking at wind in terms of being involved because we need that to supplement our energy consumption. All those things basically means that we are reducing our operating costs. Right. Uh, just a, a couple more questions before we finish. I'm, I'm really interested in the future, I guess. You continue to expand your portfolio. Can you tell us about some of your current projects that are, are under development, Phil? Um, we have slowed down this year um, based um, in terms of the acquisitions, and a lot of that has to do with um, where interest rates are going and the, the time it takes to sort of put a property under contract, and we, we still don't know the direction of the interest rates. Um, but we'll continue to, once interest rates stay, but we'll be back looking for acquisitions and especially on the newer side. Um, we have a lot of growth. Um, we own property, land that we're looking to entitle. Um, basically, we have, it, um, we have a lot of land up in Ontario, especially Waterloo, the building I'm talking about, we're, we're underway. And um, we think we can build on that property alone another thousand units over the next few years. We have a couple other sites we're trying to get entitled. And really, the one thing that you haven't asked is that we, we have a million square feet of commercial. And we got into that business because we looked at it as a the mixed use asset is something we think is has a lot of future in it. So for instance, we own the brewery downtown and we've built apartment buildings around it. So where people can live in our apartments but have all those amenities from a from a retail mm -hmm. shopping food experience, we like that. And so that we bought essentially the Charlottetown Mall over in PEI, and we have land around there from a residential point of view. And this other large asset in Waterloo, it was a 300,000 square foot um, commercial building. And we have a um, retail, we have a grocery store anchored, and there's an office component that will probably look to repurpose, and all that land will become apartments so that people can live in our building and be very close to all those other amenities, which are basically, you know, drugstores, grocery stores, banks, financial institutions. So we were big believers in that. Yeah, you mentioned the impact of rising interest rates on your expansion plans. They, thought they probably uh, have had a negative impact in the short term, but, you know, looking ahead over the next decade or so, what, what are your plans in terms of expanding uh, your, uh, your holdings? Well, I think, I mean, the fact that we're public by default means we have to grow. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore I look at it as that um, we have to show growth in our earnings and we do that by um, good acquisitions when we have surplus capital or we actually take the time to build and it takes a couple of years, but then again, these are very accretive um, um, projects that we do that, you know, the earnings are coming. And so, I mean, I don't really have a target that we need to be 
30,000 units or 40,000. We just have to be a better company overall in terms of the assets we provide, the service we provide our tenants, and doing it in a fashion that is socially responsible, but also at the same time, um, basically improving the all components of the company overall and being more profitable. And as a major residential property owner and commercial as well, uh, what are your biggest challenges looking forward, Phil? The challenges are going to be the same challenges that every one of us face. How do we solve the housing issue, the shortage of it? And that goes from how do we get involved and help from a homeless point of view to an affordability, the people that need help. Um, and then basically even also the people that have money and are trying to retire, sell their own homes and live out their lives um, when they're sort of independent in a rental unit and then going maybe into a nursing home. So it's the whole spectrum. But really, um, we find ourselves at such an interesting period of time that how do you solve a major, major issue that has been the byproduct of really two good policies from the federal government that have just really kind of got a hit of themselves in terms of um, implementing um, both of them without understanding the impact it has on the housing sector. Yeah. Now, just a, a quick follow up on that. You know, obviously, uh, the government has uh, has significantly increased the number of immigrants coming to this country in the last couple of years. And um, and uh, those numbers are really putting pressure on the housing industry. I, I'm, I'm starting to hear some calls for maybe, you know, uh, take, taking the foot off the pedal a little bit in terms of the numbers coming in on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a we have this enormous labor issue <laughs> that we see in places like the construction construction industry. Duncan Williams was on the podcast recently. He said that uh, over the next ten years, they expect thirty percent of construction workers will um, will disappear, uh, while the number of housing uh, units needed will triple. And so, you know, how do how do we square that? Are, just one final issue. Do you, are you having any issues with uh, finding uh, workers for your for your buildings? Oh, there's been a huge issue for for all the sort of the contractors that we use. I mean, that's the number one issue. But again, what the federal government can do, I mean, I haven't said it yet, but they really got to look at the amount of taxation that they're taking out of the, the housing sector. And I know that now there is starting to be a real sort of um, discussion about take off the HST. Because again, you, you think about what HST does to this building industry. Mm. And, and the joke about it is on commercial real estate, it's a flow through. It's only mm. on apartments, on housing that the government gets their money. And if yeah. I tell you that between the municipal level and the feds, if it's over 20% of the cost to build a unit goes to them, I mean, will they give that up? Right. They have to. And maybe they don't have to on the high, high end, but if they want that whole sort of affordable side of it to be accelerated, they're going to have to give up that revenue. And the reality is 
um, they've already got growth by adding new more Canadians right. than we've ever seen. That is growth. That's yes. more dollars into their coffers. But they got to give up the taxes. Right. Well, I think that that's a great place to leave our conversation, Phil. I really want to thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast and providing us with an overview of, of Killam, a, really a very successful story over a fairly short period of time, just a little over 20 years. So congratulations on your success. I want to wish you continued success and uh, we'll continue to follow the story of Killam. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.